0: This is the Man Up Report podcast with your
1: host, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann.
2: While your military drops bombs on us that cost $250,000, our surrogates kill your people with bullets that cost 50 cents. This is a paraphrase of a piece of propaganda that was put out in an English speaking video, perfect English, by the Islamic State to the American people in November of 2015 entitled, No Respite. And in this video, the Islamic State made a very clear and compelling case for their strategy to usher in the end of days and to basically declare and conduct war against the United States and the West. And in this video, they were very specific, they were very explicit about how they intend to bring the war to our shores. Hello, everybody. This is Scott Mann. I am your host for the Man Up Report, and I am your source for leadership issues that you can trust. And I am one of those guys who spent most of his adult life fighting, Um Enemies Abroad as a Green Beret, and now I'm retired after five years, and I spend time now sharing with you the issues and challenges that we face in leadership here in America and uh, abroad. But but really, I try to bring it back to what we're up against as leaders, regardless of your discipline, regardless of what you do. What do we face as leaders Uh, in raising our kids in this country and, and handing it over to our children better than we found it. Leadership issues that really matter. And I'm excited because this is our 50th episode of this podcast. It's a podcast I'm very proud of. And uh, it's covered a range of topics from trust to relationship building uh, to, you know, personal resilience. And and we've spent a lot of time talking about violent extremism, particularly Islamist violent extremism, because I do believe that Islamist violent extremism is one of the most dangerous threats facing the United States and the West today, in particular, a group known as the Islamic State. And while we have been uh, hitting them pretty hard under the Trump administration, I can tell you that the Islamic State is in the United States. They are growing, and they are working to strike again. And so um, on this 50th anniversary, I'm excited to also tell you that the second edition of my book, Game Changers, A Citizen's Guide uh, to Defeating Violent Extremists, is coming out December 7th. So it'll probably, by the time this podcast hits the streets and. This particular edition of Game Changers is really designed to be more user-friendly to you, the civilian, regardless of your background, regardless of what you do. If you care about this country, if you care about the security of our children and our freedom— This book is for you because an informed, activated citizenry is the best weapon we have against violent extremism, whether that's abroad or at home. And my observation has been that in the last 16 years, the longest war in our nation's history, three times longer than World War II, we are losing this war. And largely because our politicians and our senior policymakers are not taking the threat seriously. They're trying to apply the Western preferred way of war, a square peg in a round hole, against an enemy that is fighting it entirely differently and is not playing by our rules, hence the name Game Changers. And these are lessons we learned the hard way in the villages of Afghanistan. After 10 years, we started to apply only to have the rug pulled out from us as Green Berets about three or four years ago uh, by the Obama administration as we pulled out of Afghanistan. And now, you know, the chickens have come home to roost. ISIS is now... uh, prevalent in the West and operating to some degree in the United States. So the Second edition of Game Changers, I wrote it for the reason of getting you, the citizen, informed and activated about this so that you can vote properly, you can demand better results out of our leaders, out of our policymakers, out of our security officials, because ISIS is here now. And even if it's not the Islamic State, we have such an erosion of trust in our country. We have so many marginalized groups out there right now. Um, We've lost our national unity in many ways that, you know, a lot of the principles in this book, even if it's not dealing with violence, violent extremism can be used to stabilize community areas and reconnect them with the government in a way that is responsible and pragmatic. And that is the subject of this 50th episode on the Man Up Report podcast. And I'm really, really excited to bring in a guy that I've been wanting to get on here for a long time. His name is Matthew Millsaps. Is it Millsaps or Millsap, Matt? I'm sorry.
0: Millsaps. Millsaps That's what I thought. Yeah plural plural, is in more than one (laughs) got
2: it and uh and 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 matt is a law enforcement leader in west york borough in pennsylvania um it's a it's a it's a it's a borough that i'm going to let him tell you about that had a unique set of challenges but matt spent some time uh, as a civilian in the department of defense uh helping us fight this war and he was exposed to the game changers methodology, what we called village stability operations, when it was being employed in Afghanistan, and when he stepped into a position of leadership with the police department in West York, he decided that he was going to bring that approach and a few other counterinsurgency approaches to bear um, in his community. And so, I, and he's had a, a, he's had a, a measure of success on this. And so, uh, for this 50th anniversary, I thought it would only be fitting, and with the release of Game changer, Citizen Edition, um, that we bring Matt on and let him talk about what he's doing and what he's done with this approach. So with that and that that very long introduction, Matt, welcome to the Man Up Report.
0: Well, thank you, uh, Scott. It's it's great to be on with you.
2: Yeah, man, thanks. Uh, It's really cool to have you on here. And so I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about your background, Matt, and uh, what what led you to where you are right now? What led you to this interest in uh, taking a, frankly, a green beret style program of dealing with communities? And uh, you know, how did you even, how did you even come across that?
0: Well, Scott, has and, and I'll try to try to get to the point as quick as I can with you. Um, basically I had been a, a, a police officer. Uh, and that's one thing I want to note. I know, I know we like to call ourselves law enforcement officers these days, but uh, truthfully, I think that uh, paints uh, you know, a very narrow scope of what we do. At the local level, we're police. We're the police of the community. Uh, law enforcement shouldn't just be what we're focusing on. Uh, we have a responsibility to police our public and work with them. As opposed to just enforce laws, and so um, having said that, I had been a police officer in, in in Pennsylvania back in the late '90s. Uh, I went on to become a detective with a vice narcotics unit, and then in the early stages of the war, um, you know, I had to some degree uh, felt felt somewhat of a, uh, a calling to the government, and uh, did some private contract work, and ultimately that led me into a civilian position within the U.S. Defense Department. Um, and, and certainly I, I want to make it very clear. I was in, uh, I had a pretty cool job, I, but I was in a support role and I, I, I worked with a lot of organizations, uh, as some of, uh, the other governmental agencies, as well as the, the army specifically and extensively and in support of 20th special forces group, um, uh, for, for a period of years. Uh, and, 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 I want to make sure you understand, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to advertise myself as something I'm not, I was in a support role, but I really uh, enjoyed my job, and I enjoyed uh, looking at things uh, that, that the U.S. military was doing, and, and especially in the tribal areas of Afghanistan, uh, with the VSO program that, that you created more or less. And, and having said that, uh, one of the things that happened was uh, I got a, the offer about a we're going a little over a year ago now. Uh, originally as an acting chief and then uh, ultimately i got the permanent appointment to chief of police and public safety for uh this small municipality in, in new york pennsylvania um one of the things that i think was beneficial to me is it's my time away from law enforcement uh let me recognize uh in a lot of ways objectively where i think u.s law enforcement and police have gone wrong and and i recently wrote uh an essay that uh suggested that uh I think there's seven things we've done horribly uh, in the last three decades as police officers in the United States, and the number one thing is we haven't marketed ourselves well. Uh, you know, we do a lot of really great things. We just don't advertise, and unfortunately, uh, and the media drives us to some degree. Uh, oftentimes, when you hear police, you 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 know the the, the public has drawn a negative uh, condemnation towards it. But, uh, anyways, having said that, Matt, uh, let just-
2: me stop you there. I want to, I want to just, th- that's a really important point. If it's okay, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you at certain points because you, you're hitting on some things already. I, sure. I, one, I appreciate you bringing out the definition of police versus law enforcement and and, and that's an example right there where, you know, I never even thought about that. And that's a that's a great thing to, to to correct me on and to bring up that you know we we should have a more robust definition of policing than just law enforcement. Makes perfect sense. The other thing you talk about is this um, is how we market ourselves. You know, we went through this and are still going through this, I believe, in special forces, where you know, we we, we take the quiet professional mantra too far, and and people don't know who the hell we are, right? I mean, even in Washington D.C., I will tell you, a range of policymakers and senior leaders think that the special operations community is comprised primarily of door kickers and hostage rescue and direct action. And while there is a lot of that. Uh, our relevance as special forces by, with, and through um, moving people to action from the bottom up. That stuff's not even on the minds of policymakers and politicians, which is a problem when it comes to strategy. So I get you. And uh, I just want to bring that out for anyone listening to this. It, you know, the first thing is to be able to market and talk about your relevance, your role, your mission in the context of the larger issue and not just assume that people know who you are, right?
0: Y- yes, Scott, and, and please, first of all, uh, sir, please don't think I'm trying to correct you in any way, shape, or form. I just I, I, I wanted to draw that clarification. Especially no, it's at great. Local level. It's awesome. Um, you know, w- when I came in, and, 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 and so your listeners understand, Pennsylvania is based off a commonwealth form of government, so we have uh, some unusual types of municipal jurisdictions. And what a borough is is a borough is a, a small, most would consider a town. Uh, that generally would surround a a larger to mid sized city, uh, and in Pennsylvania, and especially during the the Great American heyday of the fifties and sixties, you know, people were you know they they lived and worked in the city. Their their goal was the white picket fence community, which were the small towns that surrounded those areas, um, and those areas were considered boroughs. Uh, And they were their own incorporated form of government. And to give you an example and and, and help your listeners understand, I have a town that is literally one square mile populated by approximately 10,000 people. So uh, that ties in and that's relevant because of this. One of the things that I think we'll get into in a little bit is talking about identification of what the problem is. One of the problems is our community was never designed to house and fit that many people. Uh, back in the 50s, you know, they, uh, we are compromised mostly of what's called a row home or row style housing. Some people would associate that with townhouses. Uh, basically, you have several homes attached that are, uh, you know, high, vertically high. However, horizontally, you know, they, they are only, you know, 15 feet wide however they may have 3 or 4 floors and those 3 or 4 floors were originally designed to contain uh, one one family one you know the, the the family unit now what we've done is because we got very relaxed in the way we wrote laws and ordinances is, is rental properties have have replaced those single families as the suburbs have been pushed out in urban sprawl and what we have now are 3 to 4 families living in what was used to be designed or what used to be designed for one family. So you have a lot of people living right on top of each other. And, you know, the first thing I looked at is uh, I asked all the officers that that were under me um, and we did have to rebuild the department to some degree. I asked all the officers, you know, uh, I, I want the answer to the question of why somebody would rather live next door to a drug dealer than call the police and tell them that there's a drug dealer next door. And so basically uh, from that point, we 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 have been uh, incorporating the, the VSO methodology and the game changer methodology are uh, when I came into uh, command, unfortunately, we were going through a pretty uh, a period of struggle for our little town. Um, right. As all U.S. cities were, and, and within the last few years, the trend has been uh, a lot of uh, question and outcry towards the way police officers have conducted themselves. Uh, our mayor, we have uh, our government entity is, is, is uh, based and comprised of a small uh, council of five people as well as a mayor. They are all elected uh, elected officials uh, the mayor at the time had uh, put a series of what had racial undertone uh, Facebook posts on social media that drew international attention, actually. And literally the uh, first few days I was uh, acting in the role of chief of police, I was coordinating, uh, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter rallies and things like that, dealing with the security and, and the, the police response to movements. Uh, ultimately, that 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 particular mayor was uh uh, resigned and, and replaced by uh, somebody who's been been uh, a lot more strategic and supportive to to what we're trying to accomplish within our borough.
2: So, what were some of the conditions, Matt, when you took over? Like, what were you looking at that that told you you needed a change here? Give us uh, some sense in just a minute or two. Like, what were you up against in your community?
0: What we what we looked at was this. First of all, for, for being such a small town within our county. We had the highest number of what would be considered part one crimes uh, by the FBI, by the Department of Justice, and the unifying, Uniform Crime Reporting uh, Standards. We had basically the highest number of, for lack of better words, felony offenses uh, occurring within our jurisdiction. We had an extreme uh, problem with transient population, uh, transient uh, violence in crime spilling over from our uh the our neighboring city, uh not to mention the issues we had with local government. We had a population, uh our citizens, our residents, uh were very reluctant to talk to the police. Our police uh was were very short-staffed, very overworked. Uh we hadn't really dedicated anybody towards conducting long-term criminal investigations and tackling the problems of the heavy felony caseload. <coughs> Excuse me. So we saw uh, a lot of our cases weren't, were not being resolved through, uh, you know, unfortunately, plea agreements and in some cases being dismissed because we were trying to just put Band-Aids on issues and making a quick arrest but not doing much follow-up, not continuing through with things. Uh, and again, that that was uh, with a, a much smaller department than what I've created. And again, I'm not going to be in a position where I, I throw stones, however, the, the predecessor, the person that I replaced, uh, they were very, uh, they, they held on to what was a very, uh, you know, reflective actually of a lot of police leaders. Uh, they were very uh, pro-enforcement. Most of our efforts were, as a police department, were, uh, you know, directed towards that direct action, if you would, right. uh, you know, making arrests, uh, you know, saturation patrols, uh, really the only encounters the citizens were having with the police were that they were either getting stopped and searched or arrested for something. Uh, you know, one of the things that I recognize uh, is we can't arrest our way to victory. Uh, right. You know, we, we, we can't arrest our way to public trust.
2: So, right. No, that's that's spot on. And, and I was just going to jump in for a second there and, 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 you know, let folks know that, you know, with the, with us in Afghanistan, when we, let's, let's just jump across the ocean here. When we were, by 2010, you know, we had spent most of our time after 9-11, you know, kind of walking the enemy down and, um, and targeting the enemy. And, you know, for us, it was attrition-based warfare, mostly capture-kill kind of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we got a lot of them. We got a lot of them. Uh, Antonio Gostozzi uh, estimates that we were spending about $16 million for every Taliban we killed on the battlefield in 2005, just to give you an idea of the amount of money we were spending. And by 2010, there were more Taliban in the rural areas, Matt, than when we started, as you know. And, and so we had to get back to our roots. We had to make a change. And it's just interesting to me to listen uh, as you talk about what was going on in your borough when you stepped in. And, and the biggest thing I just want to highlight here is that trust gap, that capacity gap between the community and the government. And, you know, I think it is a universal tension that you find in societies all over the world. But if left to its own devices, especially today in a trust depleted environment, it can really cause problems and it creates an environment that can be exploited by bad actors. So, you know, that takes us to where you were, you know, you decided to come in and and try a different approach uh, talk to us about that and, and some of the things that, uh, that you did and, and, and how they worked.
0: Sure. And one thing, Scott, I think we need to highlight, um, is really when you look and draw the comparison as is you, you have, and, 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 I like to believe is, is, is to some degree a student of, of you, um, uh, a correspondence student, let's say, huh. uh, when you look at, Especially in the the first several chapters of your Game Changers book, when you look at the uh, difference between, you know, uh, societies and cultures, and we talk about status society, uh, when you look at what you saw overseas... um, the issues are really the same. Uh, sure, you know it, it, you can't draw exact parallels, but when you look at people who are less trusting of the government than they are in the than the in the insurgents, and and I, I will make it a point to say, uh, not to sound over militarized, but we are in our our area at least facing an insurgent an insurgency, and that insurgency is crime and blight, uh, transient criminal activity and blight. So. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, counterinsurgency methodology, though it may to some sound a little too uh, militaristic, it is in fact what we're employing here. Uh, right. We're just doing it through different means. And, yeah. and uh, sorry, with that long drawn out. No,
2: no, answer. it's fine. It's, it's, it's what. Go ahead. I I, I I lost
0: my train of thought as to what you would actually ask. Well, me. no,
2: what what I wanted to point out here was that um, you know it, it it is easy, I think, for you know folks to say, well. You know, what you're talking about, Scott, is Afghanistan. What Matt's talking about is community policing, and, and I get that. But here's one thing, that I, a thread that I want to throw out here for anyone listening to this, especially for our law enforcement brothers and sisters, is here's the thing. There is an overwhelming body of evidence that shows that humans, remark, regardless of their language, their culture, uh, their socioeconomic status, humans are remarkably similar in how we are wired— to interact with each other. In other words, the things that exist in human nature, group dynamics are just as prevalent in, you know, modern contract society like West York Borough as they are in Pashtun Kandahar Afghanistan. Humans are wired essentially the same way. We're wired for meaning, we're wired for struggle. Uh, we perceive resource scarcity as a threat. We are emotional creatures. We're wired for story. We are constantly assessing our status against other humans. That's what we do. And the more so in chapter three of Game Changers, where I talk about status and contract society and 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 who we really are below the waterline. You know, Matt picked up on that and saw that there are a range of commonalities across the country. And that those factors are there, and if not dealt with, they can they can eat the lunch of a society. So, uh, I'm glad that you picked up on that, Matt, and and I'm I'm, I'm glad that you saw the, the the potential applications there. So, what were some of the things that you started to bring in um, in West York Borough as you as you looked at this approach?
0: My my goal over the last the last year essentially has uh, following your guidance, Scott, has been been threefold. Um, The first thing we wanted to make sure that the community recognized was that we as a department uh, were there to act as their community guardians 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And in order for me to honestly look the residents in the eye and say we were prepared to do that, uh, you know, I had to focus a lot on increasing our manning level, focusing on uh, what our missions were, redefining our vision as a department, looking at our core values and adding additional officers. So we went from basically seven when I walked in to now we're holding, holding fast at 15, 15 officers with two dedicated towards just dealing with, you know, the, what the, I refer to as those part one criminal offenses. So that way we, uh, let me let
2: me ask you this man i'm sorry to interrupt but so you know obviously you're taking a community-based approach and you had to address this issue with your officers increase your numbers but also address kind of the mindset what did you find because one of the things that i always say is it's got to be the right people um you have to have the right people on the team for this kind of work it's not for everybody what did you find that you had to do to address was there a mindset issue here and did you what did you do to change it
0: there, there, there was, uh, and that's one thing I, I think to some degree that we have certain benefits that you guys didn't over in the tribal areas. And in the same light, I think you guys had some advantages that, that we don't. One of the things that I focused on was bringing the department into the community and kind of, as you refer to, getting surrounded. Okay. Uh, you know, unfortunately, due to uh, contractual agreements with unions and things like that, We can't mandate that officers live within a municipality. Um, In the U.S., unfortunately, I would love to say to you, sir, that we would bring everybody in and live in the town that we police. The one thing I will throw out to you, though, is that to some degree, um, the public in some cases struggles with knowing where the boundaries are. If they know where the officers live, you know, there have been cases where they've gone to Homes at 3 a.m. and things like that. So, I, I do understand right. both sides of the situation there. But, anyways, having said that, we focused on getting surrounded and embedding into the community and doing it in a manner uh, such as for our housing project complexes, having an embedded officer program where I have two officers mm-hmm. that basically oppose each other on shift and can always be present within some of these communities. So, that way they don't just have one particular officer, they have Uh, You know, if this officer's not working because they're at home with their family, there's another officer that's there uh, building that trust, if you would,
2: within the community. Um, Was there pushback on that, Matt? I mean, was there I mean, did did you have to kind of, you know, did you you have to change some mindsets?
0: And I'm sorry that I know that's where we're we're going with things. I was lucky in the fact I basically almost got to double size, double the size of the department. What I found was that I was able to pull and build a team. Uh, and I I structured the team in a certain way, uh, that I had a lot of younger officers that had backgrounds, you know, two to three years in much larger environments like Baltimore City and Washington, D.C., that understood the importance of uh, a uh, new culture in law enforcement. Some of the senior officers, having said that, were used to policing a certain way, and they were used to that more, uh, for you know, lack of better words, heavy-handed, uh, strict enforcement-based approach. Here's what did it for Scott. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, there's some that probably still struggle with my methodology. One of the things that I found I was actually amazed by is some of the uh, some of the most strict and most enforcement-based officers. Uh, That I was really cringing about how how I was going to bridge the gap there to make them, uh, for lack of better words, maybe a little more kinder and gentler and see things from a different perspective. Here's what did it for them. When they started recognizing that by working with the community as opposed to just trying to arrest the community, they were getting better intelligence they had a better feeling inside that they were actually helping people in their lives and making a difference. And basically, uh, giving them the opportunity to experience perhaps a little bit more of a personal reward. That actually worked to my advantage. And I was amazed to see that a lot of officers that I thought would struggle with this mindset actually just needed to feel good a little bit about it and recognize that what they were doing, they were getting different Results and results they liked, and some of the ones that may have been my biggest critics are now my biggest fans.
2: Yeah, I love that, man. And and I saw similar things in Afghanistan and other places where you know, um, some because we had built such a culture over the last several years of kinetic approaches, which you got to do some of that. I'm not advocating that you stop doing arrests or that you stop kicking down doors, you got to do some of that. But understanding that the community here's the bottom line the community. When it comes to violent extremism, when it comes to instability of any kind, you know, um, crime, blight, violent extremism, the community will either be an accelerant or an antibody to instability. And the answer to that usually lies in how we engage the community and, and our relationship with the community. And, and it's, so I'm, it's just fascinating for me to, to listen to you on this and how you approach this. So you, you wrote me a note a while back too, where you talked about some of the things that you did to address another game changer principle which is to meet them where they are not where you want them to be I mean the tendency in this day and age Matt like you said is to focus on the arrest to focus on the stats um, you know walk around in the in, in the body armor and and the, the velcro you know and, and and take that approach to both soldiering and law enforcement. Mm-hmm. But you took a different approach. You met people where they were and you addressed some things that a lot of law uh, police officers these days maybe don't. Talk to me a little bit about that and what you did.
0: Sure. Uh, and, and 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 it's got if I'm following you correctly and, and and I know exactly, you know, kind of kind of where we're going. First of all, I I actually uh is is a legal within the organization. First of all, I I, I view myself in more of a support role. I recognize and here's an important thing to remember is that uh, today in the United States, I could be the best administrator in the world. I could be the best leader. I could write all the best policies you've ever seen. But at 3 a.m., it's the split second decision and judgment of my, my junior patrol officer. that can change the face of law enforcement in all of Pennsylvania. And hopefully you understand where I'm going with that. I need to trust my people and let them make the right decisions. However, in the same light. I represent our department. I've done some things like, for example, I don't wear a uniform. I dress actually rather casually because I found that in many ways the public uh, feels that that's more approachable. Uh, And to some degree, our agency in general, I start giving our officers options as far as their uniform attire. And maybe, for example, going from uh, what they used to wear, which was truly like a you know, I mean they had whistles banging off their uniforms big you know ties year-round and things like that to a more relaxed polo shirt kind of environment uh, just if nothing else to put put the uh, the residents and the, the the public at ease a little bit but also one of the things since we're you know speaking meeting them where we're already in tying into the last question um one of the other things that i think law enforcement hasn't or police officers haven't embraced is the employment of special operations on a migrant level and we we talk to you know traditionally swat teams and these big cumbersome elite units and things that, that that are slow to respond one of the things i did was purchase uh for every officer within my organization your game changers book and shared that with them and explained to them that by working by with and through the resident population and gathering intelligence that way and surgically removing the problems. You guys are doing special operations and you're doing special operations from the front seat of a patrol car. And I'll tell you this, there is an element of our, our, our staff that, uh, I think to some degree in policing in America, and I I think we could talk all afternoon as to what caused this. We developed to some degree a warrior mentality, Mm -hmm. uh, we were impressed by Navy SEALs and Army SF guys and things like that. And unfortunately, all we saw was the the, the, the direct action, being the best shooter, right. carrying the coolest guns and things like that. Uh, by teaching the officers and showing the officers and sharing with the officers your methodology and that they are, by getting to know people better and, and treating each public interaction as to some degree a personal experience in an intelligence-gathering mission, uh, they are uh, conducting, uh, you know, a kind of a, a special operations mission that nobody else is doing. Uh, a lot of them were very receptive to that. So what we found is that that uh, translated when they're dealing in public interactions, a lot of them are taking the time to just spend an extra five minutes trying to figure out and trying to listen to people and trying to help people understand uh, that we're there to support them and we're there to work with them and, uh, You know, no is no longer in our vocabulary. One of the things that police, unfortunately, and I think it's, you know, kind of exacerbated by, uh, you know, lawyers and, and you know, the the lawsuits and things like that is that uh, there's certain areas, certain things were called to very often, uh, such as like child custody disputes and landlord tenant disputes and things like that. That we don't really have jurisdiction over. And, you know, we say, no, that's not a police matter. And unfortunately, like in our department, we have a thousand calls for service a month at least. And three to 400 of them on average are those kinds of calls where there's not, you know, really anything that we could necessarily provide. And when we look at that average, you know, three to 400 people uh, a month are being told, we can't do anything for you. That's three to four hundred people a month going on Facebook, putting out to three to four of their friends or contacts that the cops didn't do anything for. them. Uh, So what I've encouraged is the officers, you know, though we might not have true legal jurisdiction over certain things, those officers are now uh, taking the time to share with somebody. Well, there's nothing we can do, but here's what here's what you can do. Or as you and I get into collaboration a little bit later, uh, we talk about extreme collaboration. Uh, Here's the agency that can help you. And so now those people are logging into their social media accounts. And in some cases, as opposed to saying the cops didn't do anything for me, they're saying I called the cops and they told me to call this agency or they gave me the paperwork I needed to file a lawsuit or they gave me this. Basically, uh, you know, trying to meet and work with people at the local level and just help them resolve issues in their life.
2: And these are issues—you just said something really key—issues in their life, right? And that's what I want to try to get across here. And please, you know, I always want to make sure I'm careful here. For my law enforcement sisters and brothers, you know, I have nothing but respect for what you guys do, and I I am not trying to equivocate the world of special forces (laughs) to, you know, law enforcement. But what I am drawing a correlation to is— Connection with the community and the role a community plays in stability anywhere in the world and the things that people deal with in their life, Matt, and, and, and frankly, a lot of times the things that people are dealing with in their life that are related to the government, that are— issues that people are grievances or as we call them in the military sources of instability those are the things that are often exploited those are the threads that are pulled by bad actors or cause an erosion of trust and when police as that frontline interaction interaction between you know top and bottom or formal and informal contract and status if they can't at least address those issues and you know, connect on them and meet people where they are, you're right, you're leaving value on the table. Social capital is being left on the table to be exploited by a bad actor.
0: Sure. And what what we saw, Scott, was I, and more specifically, I think one of the documents I shared with you is that twice a month, I actually come in in the evenings and and, and conduct what we call resolution sessions. So in those cases where the officers don't necessarily have an answer, they can at least give the person something that's okay. You know what, Here's one thing I'll tell you is nobody ever comes to the front counter in our municipal building and says, I have a problem. I want to speak to the most junior patrolmen about it. Okay, <laughs> they, they always want to talk to the chief of police. So right. what I wanted to do and what I did was I, 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 I you know, created the opportunity where people uh, without feeling like they were, uh, you know, having to jump through hoops, had access to the local chief of police. Uh, not that I necessarily have the answers, but if nothing else, it makes them feel like they have an ear. And, and they do. And I, I don't want to make it sound like this is some t- approach, you know, some propaganda or anything like that. I try to help people resolve their disputes because what we do find is that there are certain people, and, and this is something that, you know, I, I could even provide you a metrics. There were certain issues between, for example, neighbors That were long-running disputes that would get called two to three times a week for, in some cases, relating to property or relating to, you know, the the neighbor's kids and things like that. That, unfortunately, because we might not have had standing or jurisdiction over, uh, we would just continue to get these calls and continue to generate police reports by really giving somebody the ability to come in, say their piece. Try to find a solution to their issue. And in some cases, just meet with the other half and try to find a happy medium. Some of those repeat callers or repeat issues we've seen resolved. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and again, uh, there are a lot of people in our area that still to this day are not trusting of the legal system. However, if we can resolve their disputes, conflict resolution. Uh, those are things that 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 make and improve their quality of life, uh, and 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 so that we're taking that on as a role too, if you would.
2: No, absolutely, and and you know anyone listening to this, if you deal with communities, regardless of what your role is, formal or informal title, uh, dispute resolution is a reality of life, and as long as humans interact with other humans, you're going to have honor and shame and revenge and feud. And it will be prevalent. And if it's left untended, then the disputes will be handled between parties, and it's going to be ugly, and it erodes trust. And ultimately, guess what? It creates an inroad for bad actors, whether those are gangs, mafia, uh, violent extremists, to pull the threads on those simmering tensions. I have seen it over and over and over again. And so the community-based approach uh, that connects, um, that that addresses these kinds of things— is really what I mean by meet them where they are. And again, it doesn't even mean that you'll necessarily resolve them, but if you can even address them, connect, and connect them with someone else, it can have a huge impact. Now, that takes me to the next game-changing principle, Matt, which is, you know, collaboration. There are a Mm -hmm. lot of players in your borough, I'm sure, who represent development, who represent government, who represent – um, minorities. How do you, I mean, it's a lot of actors, right? I mean, there are a lot of participants. And frankly, it can be mind-boggling. Uh, I would suspect even in a small borough, the number of relevant players who are involved in a wicked problem like social stability or unemployment uh, or crime, how do you address the issue of collaboration. In other words, how do you, how does your police department, what role does it play in, you know, managing these various actors and herding the cats, so to speak, toward common solutions for a community?
0: Sure. And, and that's one of the things, uh, Scott, I, I referenced earlier that I, I kind of wrote a, wrote a paper on, on the, the the seven things that we've done wrong as police officers over the last 30 years uh, one of those things is it falls under the, the heading of collaboration, if you would, and, and, and specifically the, the collaboration with partner forces and the use of subject matter experts and private sector specialists. Here's the problem uh, that I find universally with American police and law enforcement. We, we aren't very trusting and we think everything's a big secret to the point that we're very counterproductive. Um, and what I know, what I've learned, is that we need to share. Our, we need to begin sharing our sandbox with other agencies uh, who who are working ultimately to the same goal as us. Now, uh, as far as partner organizations, there are some that are obvious. You know, children and youth services, probation and parole, uh, probation and parole, the mental health, uh, what we call out here, crisis intervention. Um, and there have been a couple answers just using those, for example, uh, where I found that kind of rewriting the job descriptions. And, 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 and let me back up a little bit and say one of the things that I established with my group, uh, with my, my officers very early on, is that uh, we take an approach, um, you know, kind of borrowing from that old kind of Marine Corps idea. Every patrolman is a specialist, and every specialist is a patrolman. We no longer can have a department where we just have, uh, you know, somebody who comes to work, patrols the borough and goes home. Everybody has a unique piece of the pie where they need to become an expert in and know not necessarily all the answers, but who has the right answers. So we identified some of the major things that we deal with regularly, and I assigned certain officers to have um uh, you know, involvement or or specialized knowledge, training and experience in certain areas and they have the answers that other officers can come to when they're dealing with an issue of who the person can be referred to or go to. One thing right now that we have a big problem with, and I think this has been a trend nationally, but like within Pennsylvania, uh, starting about 15 years ago, uh, there was a process that implemented called deinstitutionalization where we used to have state mental health facilities and a lot of inpatient mental health hospitals, uh, and we began closing those uh, right. facilities and and, and, and ultimately uh, we now have a lot of people that are in the public that have pretty significant mental health issues and unfortunately, uh, society, struggles with where they belong, where they go. Uh, so one of the things I assigned two officers to what's called the Crisis Intervention Team Program or initiative, uh, where they work with the mental health community. They have specialized training uh, in de-escalation of situations, monitoring uh, you know, surveillance, if you would, of folks that we know have serious underlying mental health issues. And when we have problems with those individuals, uh, there's a core group, or actually, in in my case, there's two officers that generally will deal with them, make the appropriate referrals, work with the mental health agencies, and in those partner organizations to find them maybe an inpatient uh, pro- a short inpatient program or a uh, at least a, a residential housing facility if they're homeless and that type of thing. Uh, so yeah, no, I, to, to try to answer your question. Um,
2: well, I think you did, Matt. I mean, by by telling that story, I, I think you 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 illuminated it perfectly. I mean, you know, this is what I'm getting at is that it, when it comes to you know stability issues today, abroad and at home. The bulk of the problems we face in civil society are wicked, complex problems. I don't mean wicked in the term of evil. I mean wicked in the form of unstructured, very hard to tame, and usually beyond the scope of any one person or organization. And you just brought up, you know, the deinstitution of of mental of mental health. That's a national problem right now. It's come up in a range of circles. It is a wicked, complex problem. But th- look at what how it manifests in your community. It shows up right, and it shows that it can show up as violent crime. It can show up as felonies, but the point is, it's it's like something that falls on the floor, like a piece of food. You either you either pick it up and deal with it, or it starts to stink. It starts to go bad. And where sure. we've go, we've come today, Matt, is it's like leaders don't address these issues and serve as a catalyst to collaborate and get the right people around the table. Um, and on an issue like this, just the work that you're doing to collaborate with practitioners and subject matter experts on this issue. And get people who are in each other's orbit but who would normally not interact to communicate. That is a powerful, powerful premise of extreme collaboration around wicked problems. It's it's one of the latter chapters in Game Changers. And I hope that people will take it seriously because if you can do that, you start to bring a degree of relevance to your community and to stability that is exponentially higher than just being a police officer. You are now a catalyst for solving bigger problems, and there's plenty of work in that area.
0: Well, and to give you an idea, real quick, Scott, of something that just actually unveiled, I, I rolled out this weekend with, with with a call for for support, which I've had an overwhelming response in areas that aren't necessarily as is I'll just give you another creative idea of a partnership opportunity that exists. Uh, we we recently uh, had some college interns that were working within the department do a community survey. That was something I did this fall. And one of the things that a lot of people, uh, a lot of the more long-term residents feel is their greatest risk. And and I don't know that it's necessarily the reality, but they feel their greatest risk is a lot of these Teens they see hanging around. So one of the things that I, I just did, actually, you could you could see it on our Facebook page. Is I I made a call to the local arts community um, for folks that wanted to create a partnership where we could do monthly workshops with kids about urban art, such as street photography, silk screening, wow. sign and poster making, and things like that. And so what we've done is not now. This is not a governmental organization. This right. is. But like a local artist guild, who understand also uh, a lot of the folks and that that are and I don't want to sound this I, I don't want this to sound inappropriate in any way, shape, or form. But a lot of folks uh, that are into uh, the, the arts community and stuff sometimes are, are critics of law enforcement. Uh, you know, they look at life through a different lens. They sometimes see things as it's 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 creative and. artistic and and don't understand some of the realities of things, I've had a a tremendous amount of response uh, from them. So basically, by working with a a local arts community to be able to bridge a gap where we bring some of our teens, if you would, uh, that are, uh, you know, maybe kind of on the fence right now as to whether or not they they don't know where they're going, they don't have much hope in life, uh, as opposed to committing that act of criminal mischief is that instead of picking up a gun to shoot, they can pick up a camera to shoot. I'm trying to build collaborative efforts with unseeming partners, such as who would ever thought that cops are going to be working with artists. You know what I mean? Well,
2: no, I, 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 I totally, I totally get that. And yeah, you know, some people, some people won't, some people's biases, Will get in the way of that, Matt, and and it's unfortunate because ultimately, again, I go back to your comment: meeting people where they live in everyday life, and and this is the kind of role that a catalyst leader like yourself can play. And it just doesn't it doesn't have to be law enforcement. This could be, you know, these types of connections that you make in your organization in your business um, is just seeing a gap and closing it through collaboration. Now, let me let me ask you this, Matt. Because um, I'm going to have to start kind of winding us towards a strategic conclusion here. And so I'm wondering, we've talked about wh- what it was like when you took over the trust gap between the community and the government. We took we talked about how you, you've brought in the right people. You've changed the mindset. You've addressed uh, this aspect of getting surrounded, of meeting people where they are, of collaboration, and even narratives and stories that you lead with that are different are you seeing any change? Are there anything? Is there anything out there right now that tells you this is the right, wrong, indifferent kind of approach?
0: Yeah, and, and there's a couple points I want to make off of that. And, and I, I do know that you, you need to get, get get the winding down. I will tell you this: of, of the four key ingredients to the game changer philosophy, the one that I would probably give the most credit to, as far as things go for us, has been telling a story that sticks. Um, You know, basically, we have repeatedly broadcast and ingrained that we are there for the people as guardians of the community, as support mechanisms, as people who want to help empower them to lead better lives and have healthier lives and safer lives. The idea being that security will naturally follow. We have beat that drum. It's on our business cards. We want to make sure everybody knows what our point is and what our vision and our mission is. Telling a story that sticks has caused people to literally, I see the comments on social media and I've heard the comments in person. People think, oh, this agent, they might have a negative or derogatory thing to say about another agency. But they say, you know, that West York, those cops are always doing something to help nowadays. You know, they, you see right. that, you hear that commentary, and I, I think we underestimate the, the value of social media and using social media for intelligence. Um,
1: right.
0: But having said that, no, uh, one of the things, in, in and that, that's where we've seen a lot of positive feedback in community surveys. We've taken other actions and initiatives to increase our presence and make sure people understand that we're ingrained in the community, and we are seeing um, a much better response. And truly, our numbers for those cases that matter, the drug dealers, the serious criminal offenses, our numbers are increasing as we're surgically removing problems. And the reason we're surgically removing problems is because now we have people in our community that are more willing to share information with us. We are talking to the folks that we used to not talk to. And now that they recognize we're human, we recognize that they are human. And and I'm not suggesting that we didn't in the past, but I'm just saying that we didn't have as good of a dialogue um, going with them as we could have. Um, We are seeing them come forward with information and the credible information and real-time intelligence that we need to be able to isolate and remove the problems from the community. And again, uh, you know, sure, you know, I, I'm not suggesting the, in, in Pennsylvania, marijuana stole legal, for example, and right. and, and you know, we would catch people, you know, walking down the street that had a small, you know, a marijuana cigarette or a joint on them. Uh, sure, that, that that's an arrest. But the arrests I like seeing made are the people that are dealing heroin, which is killing our residents right now. Right. The people that are dealing cocaine. We are now getting that information, that feedback from the community is that, hey, we recognize that you have pride and have faith in us as a community. We have a sense of pride now finally with our local government that we know that you guys are here for us. I don't want the drug dealer on my block anymore. Here's the information you need to know and we're able to, say, you know, hey, <laughs> you give me the information, we know how to we know how to make it work to our advantage. We remove that problem. And and literally I'm seeing our numbers of arrests for serious offenses Increase based off of actionable intelligence by people who we used to not talk to that now we do.
2: Yeah, no, that's amazing, man, and and it's so well said. And you know, you you guys, um, American police officers, I believe, really wrote the book on community policing, and uh, we we learn. I continue to learn so much from the 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 folks who still do that well, and you are you are certainly one of them, and I'm, and I'm glad that. Um, you know, game changers, uh, played a small role, uh, in your thought process on that. And I will just tell you, um, that I, you know, I, I, your, that collective reciprocity that you get from the community when you meet people where they are, when you demonstrate to them, um, a, a willingness to empower them and have them part of the solution, it, it, it's universal. It's just universal. And that collective reciprocity, you'll see it from your groups at work, from nonprofits, um, your customers. I encourage any leader to really consider these these approaches and game changers. And um, Matt, I want you to stay in touch with us. Um, you know, I want you to uh, stay connected with us. I've got a couple of other law enforcement officers who run podcasts. I'd love to connect them with you. I, I think you are a true thought leader and voice for this approach and and frankly we're going to need more of it in the country it's going to get worse before it gets better so um any closing thoughts that you'd like to do uh you'd like to say to anyone out there um before we wrap it up
0: no and i i understand that, that that we've uh we we've probably gone over the time limits but uh i haven't said that I appreciate you taking the opportunity, and and, and I, I don't want you to downplay. I, I, you know, it's certainly humble of you to downplay the role game changers uh, placed in, in in the model of policing that that I've adopted. Uh, I I think I think that most of what we are doing are, are based off of your, your philosophies and ideas. And and the one thing I, I alluded to it earlier, Scott, is that you know one of the things where I you had the advantage that I don't is that you had your Green Berets living in 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 the villages living in the the tribal right. area and i i said there was some distance the one thing that i think i have the advantage over you though however in domestic law enforcement or or policing is that we're not on a nine-month rotation we're not on an 18-month deployment we're right. going to be there and we're going to build from the community so some of the things that yeah. um, maybe we weren't able to get into with some of the VSO models as far as the economic development. And I know you guys did a lot of work in that area, and there's some really awesome and impressive accomplishments. We're in for the long haul, and we're going to be, my officers that I just hired are going to be in this community for the next 20 to 30 years. So you, they have a vested interest. So we're kind of rebuilding right now. And I, I think it, it will lead to a point where uh, we could do some really true awesome things, and really expand the scope of law of policing, as I like to call it, or you know, law enforcement, as it's generally recognized. Uh, I think we can we can try some really neat stuff in the future, and and really work outside what was viewed as our traditional role.
2: Yeah, I I, I agree. And uh, one commitment I'll make to you right here on the air, um, uh, Matt, is that uh, we'll find a way. If you'd like me to do it, I'll find a way to get out to your. Um, your borough, and I'd, I'd love to, to have a chat with your folks and uh, you know offer any kind of talk or training that I can do uh, to, to help with what you're doing and uh, just make that part of uh, how I try to give back a little bit. So we'll, we'll talk about that offline. We'll find a way to make that happen. I'm up in the northeast a good bit, and I'm, I'm sure we can find a way for me to get out to your location and do some training if you guys want to do it. And uh, I just applaud what you're doing, man. And uh, you're going above and beyond – the, uh, the elements of of what typical uh, I believe policing and leadership expect of us today and uh, that's what we do on on the man up report we look for leaders who are who are doing that kind of work matt so thank you for being on
0: Th- thank you for having me and, and thank you for all you did uh even unknowingly to help the 10,000 people that, that we serve every day uh, you know there there are people out there I assure you that I, I think would would certainly vouch that their life is better because of ideas you came up with, Scott. So thank you very much for everything you've done to support me.
2: Well, I appreciate it, man. I'm honored. And, and in all fairness, those ideas are ideas that uh, Green Berets and and other Marines have been putting around for a lot of years. I just took really good notes. Um, and I was blessed to be around some heroes, many of whom are not around anymore uh, who showed me these lessons and us these lessons. So it's so cool to see, them being used to stabilize our communities at home now for those of you listening uh as we wrap up here just a reminder that the game changers second edition the citizens guide is out on december 7th Uh, it's in amazon in both hardcover form and kindle Uh, i'm going to be talking about the book on my official scott man facebook page rooftop underscore leader on instagram at real scott man on twitter Uh, rooftopleadership.com. We've got a really cool video blog coming out. Every week this month, uh, our theme is change the game. So we're talking a lot about the kind of things that Matt and I talked about today in a range of ways, not just law enforcement, not just defeating violent extremism, but these principles are universally applicable in every aspect of your life and business from nonprofits to school teachers, to school boards, to Fortune 100 companies. And I know because I teach and train in all of them, and I've seen the return on investment And the return on leadership, it's powerful, powerful stuff. One other announcement here is uh, the Man Up report. We're going to keep it going, but we're going to start pulling this thing back to a monthly report. Uh, It's going to be kind of a uh, geopolitical, uh, strategic, um, homeland kind of talk. And, you know, talks like what Matt and I have had. And I want you to be on the lookout for the Rooftop podcast, which is now rolling out. And it's going to be more of a weekly variety uh, closely tied to the video blog that we do, talking about day-to-day aspects of leadership, many of the same principles that Matt and I talked about today, but in the day-to-day application of your life, from storytelling to active listening to resilience, all of the things that we need to lead people today who don't want to follow Uh, The Rooftop podcast is going to be coming out. You're going to be seeing this sucker about every week or two. Uh, But we'll still have the Man Up Report about every month where we're talking about the bigger picture issue. So we're going to be busy, uh, but we're excited about this in 2018. So make sure if you're subscribing to the Man Up Report, continue to stay subscribed to that. But I'd like you to subscribe to the Rooftop podcast as well. Matt, make sure you spread the word to your folks um, and uh, it's just an honor to have you on. It's it's I'm so appreciative of our listeners out there. Uh, if I don't talk to you guys before Christmas, have a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year. Thanks for what you do around the world to keep our societies free. And until next time, this is Scott Mann, your trusted source for leadership. You're listening to the Man Up Report, and I'll see you on the rooftop. <music>
1: I fell asleep around Macon Running 80 on Highway 75 Eighteen years old Yeah, thinking I was good to go It was a stone-cold miracle how I survived I Took out three Georgia pine trees Turned that car to a pile of scrap I walked away without Great. Well, that should've been a self-correcting mistake, kind of thing that leaves you wide right awake. All it did was feed my bulletproof. So many times that I cheated death, the people I loved died for less. Whole lot of second chances that I blew. You ask me how I got here, how I found this place. Devil tried hard, but my fate cut the cards in God's grave. Fast forward to an angry young man fighting in the hills of Afghanistan, living for the moment on a one-way track. Learned my trade and I learned it good I learned the value of brotherhood Still cuts me like a knife The ones that didn't make it bad I can see their faces when I close my eyes Brother, you can bet as long as I'm alive They'll live on like a solid gold country song so many times that I cheated death, but people I love died for less. Sometimes it don't seem right that I live on. You ask me how I got here, and how I found this place. The devil tried hard, but when fate cut the cards, it was God's grace. been want to look back the one thing stopped me in my tracks was when they laid that baby girl in my arms. with all the demons I'd protected and the skeletons I'd collected started turning loose with a cold grip on my heart I guess I found a little clarity for once in my life I could finally see Ain't my job to understand In all of the times that I cheated death When people I love die for less only God knows a plan Only God knows a plan Who yeah You ask me how I got here how I found this place. The devil tried hard, but when fate cut the cards, it was God's grace.